This morning we continue in our study of 2 Peter. If you'll turn there, we're in the book of 2 Peter. We go verse by verse through these epistles and and letters and, and books of the Bible, and we have come this morning to the second chapter of 2 Peter. Um, And in this chapter, the Apostle Peter is going to give full attention to false teachers. And that that is a major theme of this book. And in this chapter, it's just all out confrontation. Uh, In chapter one, Let me get you solid in your doctrine of salvation, solid in your doctrine of the scriptures, solid in your doctrine of sanctification, because those are the things that false teachers will attack. So he spent chapter one and chapter three, which surround chapter two, just helping them get solid in these important truths that get sought at or get attacked by false teachers all the time. And in chapter two, This morning, we're only going to look at the first three verses, but there's three sections here to this. Let me just read verses one through three to you. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You may or may not have an alarm system in your house. This is not, I'm not trying to sell you one either, but I'm just saying, you may or may not have an alarm system in your house, but it's, you turn it off, you're turned on at night because you want to know if somebody comes in the house while you're there. That's the purpose of the purpose of having it there, so that you can get up and do something about the intruder. And that's really what Peter is telling us about in this book. We need to have a spiritual alarm system to recognize false prophets or false teachers. We need to be alert because uh, one, we have to be discerning. We have to be able to discern truth from error. But they're all around us and they were very much there in Peter's time, very much there in Israel's time and very much on the scene today. And we're told in Matthew chapter 24, they'll be even more so in the last days. Key word in these three verses, I think, is the word destruction or destructive. You see that? You see that in uh, verse 1 twice, destructive and destruction. And you see it down in verse 3, destruction. And then you see it over, flip the page or look over to chapter 3, and you see it used in verse 7 of chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3. Destruction of ungodly men, judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You see it in verse 16, you go down there, to their own destruction, talking about those who distort the scriptures. And I just say that because five times the word is used in this letter, 
and three of those times in the first three verses here of chapter 2. In chapter 2, he's simply giving us a picture of false teachers in general. It's like an overture before a play or uh, a ballet or something where you're going to hear pieces of the, what you're going to hear more, in more detail later, you just hear pieces of the music at the beginning. And then when you actually, you actually start hearing some of that more detail as you go through the passage. And that's kind of what verses 1 through 3 are, an overture to the rest of the chapter. You're going to hear things in verses 1 through 3 that he'll say in greater detail as we go through this chapter. The word destruction, by the way, is the term that is fitting for false teachers because they influence people with destructive heresies. It's destructive to the church. It's destructive in people's lives because it leads them down a path to destruction. Destruction characterizes their influence and it characterizes what's going to happen to them. Is destruction. You know, this is um, a subject we just cannot ignore because there are eternal consequences uh, for people who are caught up under false teaching. Uh, the followers are the ones who get caught up in this and deceived by it, and they're led down a path to destruction. So, you know, we, we come to a chapter like this, and you've got to really brace yourself for this, um, because you're probably, some are thinking, maybe you're thinking, I thought this, you know, I said, well, I wish I could just talk about something positive today. I wish I could just think, talk positive, you know. I think we're just basically soft people in general, and we just say, hey, just talk about something soft and uh, rather than just something so negative. And I just want to tell you something. The Bible is mostly negative. It really is. We have a very positive message, but it's confronting the human condition. That's the problem. And we see it, it doesn't hide things. It, it doesn't hide the problems of humanity. It doesn't hide the difficulties and, and challenges of humanity. It's therefore, it's negative because it's about you and me and the things around us and the influences around us. We have a very hopeful message. And it's against the backdrop of all that evil that our message is even more hopeful and shines against that. But I know that there are times we just look at stuff like this and you go, Wow, you know, the fear of man just says, says to me, I just want to be peaceful, Rod. Let's, let's just be a peaceful church. Uh, but that's not the Christian life. Jesus did not say, I came to bring a wand. I came to bring a, a sword. I did not come to bring peace. Now, there's peace in knowing Christ, no doubt. But he came to divide Families, some would believe in a family and some would not believe in a family. He came to confront evil and wickedness. And folks, that is confrontational at times and, and that is not always positive. That is not always peaceful in terms of the feeling of peace. See, if you hate conflict, you don't like books like Second Peter. You don't like books that have chapters like Second Peter. Because that's what this chapter is reminding you of, the conflict that we are in with the truth. Because at some point, you will be in a situation where you need to speak against error. We cannot, if we love the truth, we cannot just be silent 
when we hear error that is destructive. I know I'm not putting everybody that ever said anything wrong theologically in the category of chapter 2. Please do not think that. I have said things that I had to go back and say that was really wrong. We all do that. We all do that. And I look at my early Christian life, and I was deceived about lots of things, and I would never say those things again, and I hope you never find out I ever said those things. But that's, that's, just, that's just part of our growing in Christ. And so I'm not putting everybody in this category that's ever said or believed something that is an error. That's not this. We all have been subject to that kind of thinking in our humanity. And it's not that we just want to fight and, and find negative things to talk about. No, I want to be positive. We want to be positive and share the hopeful things of God's word. But the problem at this church, you know what the problem at our church is? We teach expositionally. That means we, get to, we go verse by verse through a book. That means I don't get to choose the topic every week. That means that we emphasize what God emphasizes. And this is what he's emphasizing for us at this point. So that's the value of expositional preaching, but it's also sometimes you go, wow, this is just weighty stuff talking about these false teachers and these false prophets. And it's, it's something that we have to be equipped in. It's we, we have to be discerning. If there's any weakness in the church today, it's that we don't have discernment. Somebody stands up and says something, oh, that sounds good. There's no discernment. People can get up and make any statement they want to about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and everybody just kind of goes along. Somebody felt something, therefore it must be true. Somebody had a dream, therefore it must be true. There's just lack of discernment in, in, Christ, in, the, in Christianity today. And you know this, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but that is something that we must have. And that's what Peter is doing here. Uh, he says in the end of chapter one, my time is short. I'm not gonna be with you much longer. And I've got to equip you because this is what's on the horizon. This is what's on the horizon. Whenever, whenever there is truth preached, you can count on Satan wanting to attack and undermine. That is how Satan works. He goes after the truth. He wants you to believe lies. He wants you and I to have watered down theology, accommodating theology that accommodates every, every view that comes down the pike. I've told you this before, I want to be tolerant of all men. No matter what their sin is, no matter what their practices are, I want to be tolerant. We want to be a church that is tolerant of all people and loving toward people. But we cannot tolerate every idea. We can't just say every idea is right and every idea is true. We must know the truth. And when its error is spoken, we must speak to that and address that, especially when it's preached and it's a destructive heresy, when it's held to and it's telling others and, and it's affecting others, we have to speak to that. And you, you see it, the characters on 24-7 cable with all their 
doctrines and teaching and, and just spewed out constantly. And it takes great... It's encouraging to me that God warned us about all this 2,000 years ago, that we would see this, because that's exactly what we are seeing. And so, one of the most dangerous things is not the persecution from out there, as we've been saying. It's the persecution that goes on within the church when false teaching takes over and begins to influence a church. And I'm thankful in our church, I think, I think uh, because we have a specific statement of faith, we have a what we teach document that maybe you don't agree with everything in it, but at least you know we teach those secondary issues of the Bible. Those, we, you know our views. And because we have, you have elders that guard the door, I mean, we, 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 I think false teachers would have a, have a difficult time, and false thinking has a difficult time, but it doesn't mean it can't. It doesn't mean it won't. I can't control blogs, and I can't control YouTube. You know, that's, that's other ways they creep in. But let's just look at these guys as they're described for us here. And he, let me just break this down for you. First, he starts out with their presence. They are presence. We can be certain, we're told. We can be certain that they will seek to infiltrate the church, okay? And he tells us that in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. The word but connects you to the previous chapter. You remember at the end of chapter 1, he just got through saying, God carried along his prophets to write the scriptures, that was the end of chapter 1. God had his men whom he carried along and they spoke his words and they wrote his words. But Satan, chapter 2, also has his men. That's the connection. Don't let the chapter divide confuse you. It's all one, one thing. There's no need for a chapter divide here. It's all the same thing. This, these are Satan's men, false prophets and false teachers. Notice the difference. Old Testament, false prophets. New Testament, false teachers. Among the people, we're talking in, the, in verse 1, we're talking about the Jews, the people. We're talking Old Testament. There were false prophets in the Old Testament, even among God's people there, just like you're going to have them among God's people now. Nothing new. One commentator said this, the most destructive trial to the Israelites was not the Philistines or the Macalites, it was the false prophets that came within their gates. That's Douglas Moo in his commentary. That's a good statement. The greatest trial for them was what was going on within their camp, not the outside. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Let me just take you back a moment and show you what Peter is referring to. Jeremiah chapter 23. Just to see that nothing has changed. You're going you're to look at this and you're going to say exactly why Jeremiah is an up-to-date prophet. He is called an up-to-date prophet by many. And you'll see that in these examples. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 23, after he is gotten through talking about kings and, and 
the Messiah coming, all of those things, it gets down to verse 9. Verse 9, Jeremiah chapter 23. He says, As for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I have become like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. I'm, I'm upset because of what's happening with God and his word. Notice in verse 10, for the land is full of adulterers, for the land mourns because of the curse. The pastures in the wilderness have dried up. Their course also is evil and their might is not right, for both prophet and priest are polluted. Prophet and priest are both polluted. Even in my house, I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. Verse 12, therefore, their way will be like slippery paths to them. They will be driven away in the gloom and fall down in it. I will bring calamity. So, so let me ask you this, Jeremiah. Why, why are they so toxic? What are they doing that is so toxic? Notice in verse 20, excuse, verse 14, going down to verse 14. And he gives some identifying features of these false prophets in Israel. Number, notice in verse, the first one. Among the, also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And notice, and they strengthened the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become, like me, become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. You know what's going on there? The prophets were not calling anybody out for sin. The prophets were not calling anybody out, excuse me, to turn back from their sin. You see that in that verse? They're walking in falsehood. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. This is what false prophets do. Oh, you want to live that way? That's okay. God doesn't mind. That's okay. You don't have to repent of anything. You don't have to change anything. Just come as you are and stay as you are. Does that sound familiar? Yes. They have changed God's message to where there's no, where it's void of repentance, where it's void of talking about sin. I've had some of you tell me that. I've never heard a pastor, our pastor at our previous church, ever talk about repentance and sin. Well, folks, that's not just your pastor. That has become very standard in many churches. And no, no discussion of holiness and the importance of holiness. It's been laid aside. Now it's self-esteem. Now it's your felt needs. That's what matters most. And that's why he says you strengthen the hand of the evildoers. They're boldened because, yes, my pastor said it's, this is okay. Therefore, I'm justified in what I'm doing. In this case, the prophets say this is okay. Second thing they do, they have messages that are not from God. Notice in verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination. Get that? Their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. A prophet was to speak for God. These guys, he says, are not doing that. It's their own imagination. You may recall back in chapter one of 1 Peter, Peter said, we do not speak from our own minds. We do not speak from our own thinking. We do not speak from our own imaginations. We do not speak from our myths. A true teacher and prophet of God does not, does not stand, 
one who says he speaks for God speaks from God or from God's word. That's what these true prophets, they weren't carried along by the Spirit, like we saw at the end of 1 Peter. So many preachers and teachers get into pulpits with sermons that are filled with their own vain imaginations. They exegete movies. They exegete their own personal experience instead of the Bible. And that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Own imaginations. And they make false promises. Notice in verse 17, they keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. You know what Jeremiah told them? Jeremiah, the true prophet, had told the people of Israel, you are going to pay for this. You are going to suffer the consequences of your behavior. You are going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians and into servitude. He says, there is no peace. These false prophets are coming along saying, oh, he's overreacting. Oh, calamity will not come on you. Oh, peace, peace. There are no consequences. That's what they were saying. God is not going to judge Folks, that is exactly what Peter is confronting, by the way, in the book of 2 Peter. Remember? The false teachers are saying the same thing. There is no second coming, and there is no judgment coming associated with that second coming. And that's a convenient theology when you want to live however you want to live, to satisfy your own guilty conscience. Well, he's never going to, he doesn't. He's not going to hold me accountable for any of this. Go down to verse 20. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he's performed and carried out the purposes of his heart, that God's heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they went anyway. They ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. If they had stood in my counsel then they would have announced my words to my people. And my people would have turned back from the, their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. If they were speaking from me, there would be a message of sin and repentance and holiness. Go down to verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name. I had a dream. I had a dream. I had a dream. How long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain? Is not, get this, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer which shatters a rock. The word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the inner part of a man and it, 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 it smashes his self-will. It smashes his pride. 
It goes deep into the heart because it's driven there by the Spirit of God. Your dreams aren't going to do that to me. Telling the prophets, they don't have, they're not like a hammer. They're not like fire that purifies or a hammer that breaks up. Go to verse 31. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who uses their tongues and declare, the Lord declares, saying there's talking for God and they're not. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting, yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit. Go down to verse 40. I will put an everlasting reproach on you and an everlasting humiliation which will not be forgotten. So this is serious. This is serious. That's, that's, that's the first part of verse, go back to chapter 2 of Second Peter, that's the first part. False prophets also arose among the people, Israel. And then he says, in the same way that they were destructive in their influence in Israel's time, they are destructive in their influence in your time and my time. There will also be false teachers among you. You can count on it, he's saying. Pseudo-teacher, that's false teacher. Not only is their message false, but they're false. They say things they don't even do themselves. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They tell you to do something and they don't even do it. They're whitewashed tombs. They give the appearance of of being so holy and, and pious on the outside, but on the inside they're dead men's bones. They're dead spiritually. He says when it comes to their errors, he says we, you know, we, we just don't blame their teaching. That's what this means, pseudo-teachers. Pseudo they're, they're false. It's not just their teaching. They too are, are false. And they were seeking to infiltrate God's people. The thief, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's John 10.10. 10. Jesus was warning about that. I know my sheep, my sheep hear my voice, I'll hold on to my sheep, but there is the thief, there is that thief who comes to kill and destroy. So Peter's talking about the reality of their presence here. And we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. We should not be surprised. It's sad to me to hear what's going on in countries around the world when the Iron Curtain went down years ago and Russia and Eastern Europe and places like that and just all the cults went in, all the false teachers went in, everybody went in just to exploit that whole situation, not with the truth, but just to build up their own kingdom. Prosperity gospel, just appealing to the greed of man, appealing to the flesh. You see, the, you see that message Peter says, within the confines of the visible church, and may not be every local church, but in the church as a whole, there's always going to be false teachers in Christianity. And we need to have constant spiritual alertness. And notice verse 1 also, he, the secrecy. They, they are, they're secret, okay? Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies? 
That's their goal. They're not going to have open resistance. They're not going to give up, stand up and say, Jesus is not God. They're not going to say that. They don't believe that. They, they believe that statement, but they wouldn't say that just out front. They don't, they don't just... Uh, they, they, they want to be easily embraced. They, they don't come into our churches and take a bulletin from the usher and then say, oh, and by the way, I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. They don't do that. It's secret. They, they want to, and believe me, any church that will allow people to stand up and, tol- and, and will tolerate any view that is said and say, oh, how wonderful that is for a message from God or extra biblical revelation or any of those things. That is a church that is easy prey for a false teacher. Anyone who does that, any church that does that, they, they're, they're susceptible to that. And that's the kind of churches I really believe they look for, not a church that has a high view of Scripture. Jude 4 says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. That's the same idea, under false pretense. And that's why they lie about what they believe. Secretly introducing, you see that? Destructive heresies. Satan-inspired heresies. Heresy is an interesting word. It's not what you think, probably. It, it just simply means a sect. It, it was used of, in Acts 5.17, the sect of the, the, excuse me, the Sadducees, the heresy of the Sadducees. It's used of the church even, 1 Corinthians 11.18, a faction within the church. It's all the same word. Vine says it this way, the term heresy denotes an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion that is substitute for submitting to the power of truth, and it can lead to division and formation of factions. So it's not always blatant uh, or an obvious deviation, but it's an opposing view that seeks to create a theological faction. It's divisive. And the, the, the false teacher is the ringleader of that. And he does this in different ways. He, he, he wants to make sure he can associate with true teachers. He wants to be on the stage with a true teacher. He wants the recommendation of a true teacher. He wants the, uh, to be accommodated by true teachers. Mormons have been trying to do this for a long time with Christianity. They want to be seen as mainstream. A lot of cults do this. But it's not just in the cults, it's within the factions, uh, the, uh, the prosperity gospel and, and some of the others. But they want to pretend they believe and they, they, and they will agree and they'll even sign a doctrinal statement, they'll sign something, but they're basically lying just to get in the door. They've done this in our seminaries, they've done this in our Bible colleges. They don't really believe it but they want the job and they want the opportunity to be a destructive influence. And maybe that is not their language, but I guarantee you it may not be their motivation, but I guarantee you the next generation will be affected by that. And there's, they, they want to keep things ambiguous as possible. You've got Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn and Todd White and Joyce Meyer 
they're not secretive about their views on the prosperity gospel and all the other stuff, they, the craziness that they promote. They're not secret. They're obvious. But there are others who are just caught up in their teachings, and maybe it's just for a season. Maybe some of you have done that, and I just praise God you're not there anymore. It really bothered me when many prominent pastors signed on with critical race theory. I had a huge problem with people I really love and respect and have benefited greatly from their teachings. When they signed on with critical race theory and a social gospel and undermining the truth with those teachings, undermining the sufficiency of the gospel, with those teachings. And it's not that I would put those men in the category of chapter two, but I would say their teaching is not helpful and it can lead the church's next generation down the wrong path. They signed on to those things and it just lets that stuff in. And pretty soon you're saying, well, Tim Keller, I really like Tim Keller believes that, I guess it must be okay. There are people like that who we, who we all respect so much. I just don't think those things are helpful. I think there's a lot that fall into the not helpful category that are allowing things to get into the mind of the church and to cause it to think wrongly. And, and then they start questioning things, ambiguity, they start questioning things. They, start, they, they say they believe the Bible is clear on things. But at the same time, they'll come out and say, well, well, it's clear, but you just can't trust the first opening chapters of Genesis. Or they'll come out and say, uh, hath God really said this? I mean, the culture is saying this. Well, maybe homosexuality is not a sin. Maybe homosexual desire is not a sin. Maybe homosexual lifestyle is not a sin. And pretty soon we're questioning everything because of the undermining of the scripture. That's how they work. And I'm not saying the motivation in every one of these is Satan-inspired, as these guys in chapter two understand that, but I do believe they say things that are not helpful and take the church down the wrong path. They promise freedom. Uh, Look in, um, uh, go down to verse 19 of chapter two. They, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. This is a characteristic of their secrecy. Their secrecy as they say, oh, God allows these things. These things are okay. These things are not a sin. Promising them freedom, uh, and I'm talking about in, in, in moral issues, for by what a man, excuse me, for what a man is overcome, that he is enslaved. See, they they start giving more and more allowances in the area of Christian liberty. How close close can I go to something before it starts to become a sin? How close can I go to the edge of a cliff before I fall off? And see, that should be a red flag. See, when when a teacher stops talking about holiness, it's not a question of how far can you go, but how holy can you be? When the emphasis becomes how far can I go, and it's still not be called a sin, that should be a red flag. Look at verses 13 in chapter 2. Verse 13, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. 
They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. See, they, they introduce these ideas. It's antimonianism, folks. It's antimonianism. It's the teaching that says you've just got to believe in Jesus, but it doesn't matter how you live. It's lawlessness. There's no rules. And we can't be fooled. And you know what? They stay in the dark. They don't let the elders know their, their presence. They pass around books. Uh, they pass around their literature. They get on the phone and talk and do the grapevine, all of these things. I, I'm just thankful in our church, I'll just tell you this, that people that lead Bible studies in our church run their materials through the elders first. I'm thankful for that. And it's not because we know everything or we know everything that's on the, out there. We don't. We have to look it up ourselves. And we may not agree with everything that everybody says. We don't expect to but we do want to note anything that's harmful to the thinking and the mind of the church because we know how these things creep in and it can be unsuspecting. And let me just, I'm not going to finish, obviously, anywhere close. But anyway, 2 Peter, go, go back to 2, are you still in 2 Peter? Yeah, we're in 2 Peter, aren't we? Look back at verse 1. Even denying the master who bought them, a lot of controversy on this phrase. Some people say, how could they lose their salvation? Whoa. See that? We don't believe that. You don't lose your salvation. Arminians say, some Arminians, not all, would say they lost their salvation. They once believed and they lost. Now they're no longer Christians because they lost their salvation. No, we don't believe that. We believe if you're truly saved, if God saved you before the foundation of the world, God does not go back before the foundation of the world and unsave you. You're saved. And he says, that's all it is to it. You're saved. It's eternal salvation. So that's not what we're talking about here. Schreiner gives the best explanation. He just simply says, this is appearance. It's like Judas gave the appearance that he was one of them. It's like Matthew 13. Tares among the wheat. The visible church today has tares among the wheat. The wheat are the true believers. The tares are false believers. There are people in the church today, Jesus said it in his kingdom, that he will one day come and separate out. There are tares among the wheat. These teachers, they come in and they affirm that they belong to Christ. They say, yes, we're Christians. We believe that gospel message. They say those things, but they, and they profess those things, but they do not possess Christ. They are tares. They are those who would simply be Unbelievers, wolves in sheep's clothing. And the way you know they deny the Christ is by the trajectory of their lives. You can, folks, you can profess it all day long, but the only way I know you're real and the only way you know I'm real is your observation of my life and what I say. 
We all make claims. We all make give appearances. But the only way I know is when I watch and listen and see. That's why Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Didn't we do all of that? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's serious. You did all those things, really? I bet everybody just thought you were something. I bet everybody thought, wow, he's one of us. And Jesus says, I never knew you because of the practice, lawlessness, antimonianism. Using, God, using Jesus, God's grace as a license to sin. Many are doing that. Hey, folks, there's just so much writing out there on that by people on that today. It's crazy just saying yeah, just this antimonianism. Keep that word in your lawlessness is the word. It does matter. He saved me. He, he, it's Titus 2. Charlie and I were together this week. He, still, he quoted this verse to somebody. I thought it was great. He says, he, the grace that we have from God is a grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness. A grace that does not teach you to deny ungodliness is not God's grace. God's grace is a grace that teaches you, Titus 2.14, to deny ungodliness. That's true grace. And teaches us to do that. Well, there's more to say. More to say. I'll pick this up next time, but I, I, the saddest verse to me is verse 2. Many will follow. See that? Many will follow. That saddens me. Their influence has an effect. The effect of their presence is horrible. Preview. Hey, listen, their message is go down the Broadway, the wide gate. You don't have to repent. You don't have to leave your sins at the door. You can bring them with you. Practice them all you want in the Broadway. The narrow gate's not like that. Narrow gate... God, by God's grace, you're given the grace to repent of sin and enter into the way, the truth, and the life. That's the narrow gate. False teachers teach the broad way. God, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word and your truth. A lot said here today, Lord. God, don't let me be an angry preacher. Don't let me be one who's just negative. Don't let us be a negative church. Let's be a loving church. Help us to love in truth, though. Let truth, be the, let truth be the parameters by which we love one another. And be quick, God, to mark out those who teach destructive heresies. I know of no such thing in this church, God, but I know we're susceptible. I know because of the strong stands we take and the positions we hold to that we're going to be attacked. Satan does not like what we're talking about in this place. Satan does not like what we're doing here at this church. And he will do whatever to disrupt it. But we thank you we have a God that's much bigger. We don't live in fear of that. We live in fear of God and pleasing him. Thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.